The following message is by Pastor Jason Polly. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. Today we're going to be looking at Joshua 7, and I've decided to depart from 1 Corinthians for just a week for a number of reasons, and, and we're going to be coming back to uh, 1 Corinthians next week, but I wanted to look at Joshua 7, and we're going to be looking specifically at verses 1 through 13 with a real focus on verse 1. But before we look at our text this morning, it's important to understand the context in which Joshua 7 is written. Because all the books of the Bible are the very Word of God, it wouldn't be advisable for me to rank them by their significance. However, the book of Joshua provides critical historical information, without which I think the rest of Scripture would be difficult to understand. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, reveal a God who is sovereign and intimately involved in the lives of men. The first five books, the Pentateuch, talk about a God who, starting with Adam and continuing on through the nation of Israel, calls a people to worship and serve Him. And then Joshua, being the first of the first uh, 12 historical books, the first of the 12 historical books, it kind of forges a link between the Pentateuch and those historical books, the remainder of Israel's history, if you will. So Joshua is immensely important in that it details a significant uh, time frame, a significant time in the lives of God's people. The book of Joshua is comprised of two major sections, chapters 1 through 12 dealing with the conquering of Canaan, and chapters 13 through 24 with the division of the land among the tribes of Israel. And if I was to summarize the book of Joshua, if I was to summarize what it is all about, I would say it's about faithfulness. The two major themes that run side by side in this book is that God Himself is faithful to His people, and that God expects faithfulness from His people. So God is faithful to His people, and He in turn expects faithfulness from His people. A phrase that is often repeated in the book of Joshua is, I will be their God, and they will be My people. Indicating that God wants to be the God who is served, and He wants to be the God who blesses. So the book immediately preceding Joshua is Deuteronomy, and it ends with God's people without a home. And their leader Moses has led them out of slavery into Egypt. I'm sure you're familiar familiar with the story. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And now they stand ready to enter the land that God has promised them. And Deuteronomy ends with the death of Moses. And the book of Joshua picks up with God's appointment of Joshua to take his place. And to lead the Israelites into Canaan to conquer the land. And shortly after Joshua assumes command... He sends spies into Jericho so that they might know what his army will be up against when he attacks the city. The spies return to Joshua with good news that the people of Jericho have heard of God's miraculous deeds for his people. That they've heard of what God has done and that terror has fallen upon them. So Joshua then follows the Lord's direction in leading the people across the Jordan River into the land of the Canaanites. And God once again shows His strength and His amazing care for God's people. How? By stopping the waters of the river so they can walk through on dry land. And after setting up a memorial to the Lord 
and circumcising all of the men who were born in the wilderness, Joshua then leads the people to Jericho. And God's plans for, the, for defeating the city, though they're unusual, they're clear. They're very clear. He says, here's how I want you to defeat the city. And that really brings us to our text. They, they march around the city to see the walls crumble down. And that brings us to today's text. So that's kind of the background. I know it's a lot of background, but I think it's important for us to understand as we look at what Joshua uh, speaks about as Joshua 7, uh, what exactly is going on here. So we're actually going to back up from Joshua 7 a little bit and look at starting at Joshua 6, verse 17. And we're going to read all the way through 7, 13. So if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Starting at Joshua 6, verse 17 says this, The city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout and the wall fell flat down. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. And Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all that she has out of there, as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire, and all that was in it, only the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab, the harlot, and her father's household, and all she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation. And with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up. Only about two or 3,000 men need to go up to Ai. Do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few." So about 3,000 men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shabarim and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted 
and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off your name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, Rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have taken some of the things under the ban, and have both stolen and deceived. Therefore they have also put them among their own things. Therefore the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you any more unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So I realize that's a very long text. And if you have been around any length of time, you know that for me, three or four verses is a big deal to tackle. So we're going to try to get through this. And the structure of today's message will be a little bit different than maybe some of the other messages that I have preached from this pulpit. But as we work through it, hopefully God will meet us and help us to see exactly what we can learn and apply from this text. You see, instead of devising a plan to breach the city wall, God commands the people to walk around the city once a day for six days, and then on the seventh day to walk around the city seven times. And can you imagine being there? Can you imagine being in Jericho and seeing this happened. God says, here's how you're going to do this. You're going to walk around the city, walk around these walls, you're going to do it at once a day, every day for six days, and then on the seventh day, do it seven times. And the walls will crumble. I just can't imagine being there and seeing that, seeing that happen. I've been to Jericho, by the way. Jericho's an interesting place. It's pretty awesome to see. Uh, it's now controlled uh, by uh, Muslims. And it's interesting, though, we got there and the Muslim tour guide said, I know what the Bible says, knew we were a Christian tour group, I know what the Bible says about um, the walls falling, you know, your God bringing the walls down, but clearly we've done archaeological digs, we found that Jericho was destroyed by fire. And I thought, well, it's funny, because that's what the text actually says, right? That they, the city was then destroyed by fire. They walked around, the walls fell, and can you imagine, just before that, God had stopped a river for them to cross over into the promised land. How could anyone who was there not see the tremendous blessings obtained by simply being obedient to God? And then we get to chapter 7, verse 1, and it says, But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. And therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. You know, 
I can't help but think, what is Achan's problem? What is his problem? God was very clear. In 6.18 it says this, But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban. He says, don't take them. Because if you do, you'll make Israel accursed. The last thing the Lord said before the wall fell was, don't take anything from the city for yourselves. God had revealed Himself in a mighty and awesome way to the Israelites. How could anyone miss that He was the one real, true, living God? And yet, in reality, God has revealed Himself to us today in equally remarkable ways. And an unbelieving world explains it away. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare of the glory of God. You know, I'm convinced that the clouds, and I remember reading this in a book one time, I don't remember the book, I think it may have been The Case for Faith or something, where a professor said, the clouds could come together and form the words, Jesus is Lord. And the world would say, well, and explain it away. And you know, in reality, we talk about the world, but we're not really all that different from Achan. I don't know about you, but I can't count, I can't even begin to count the number of blessings and small miracles that the Lord brings into my life every day. And I purposefully say small miracles, because I'm convinced more and more every day that God cares about the very details of our lives. And that every day, we think miracles are these big, huge things, and yet every day is filled with miracles. We serve a God who can and does infinitely more, who can can and does do more than we can ever imagine, more than we can ask or imagine. Not just the Red Sea events, but also small miracles. So how do we respond? I think all too often we respond like Achan. We respond in a way that shows our lack of trust, and we respond in a way that is disobedient to what he would have us do. So I want to focus today in large part on Joshua 7.1, and this, this idea of things under the ban. It's the Hebrew word kerem, which is hard enough to pronounce, but it's things under the ban. And individual words have a range of meanings, And the word harem is certainly no exception. But while the meaning of individual words varies, a word has only one meaning in its context. When we understand the context, we can understand the meaning of the word. The word appears in eight different verses between the 6th and 7th chapter. I don't know if you picked up on that. As I read through the New American Standard, again and again, things under the ban, under the ban, under the ban. And that's the way each time the New American Standard translates it, whereas it's translated a variety of different ways in other English translations. The King James Version translates it as the accursed thing. The New Living Translation uses things set apart and then dedicated things. The the NIV uses the translation devoted things. And this lack of clear consensus, I think, testifies to the fact that it doesn't have an exact English equivalent. It's not that we can't know what God meant or what His Word means. It's that it's hard to express in English. Further proof of this is found when one examines the use of this word outside of Joshua 6 and 7. For example, the King James Version alone 
translates it many different ways. It translates it as net, a cursed thing, a cursed, cursed, a cursed thing, devoted, destruction, devoted thing, dedicated thing, destroyed. And obviously, a dedicated thing carries quite a different connotation than does an accursed thing. Something that is cursed and something that is dedicated. And how do those two fit together? Well, a great deal of insight can be gained from a longer, more detailed explanation. A great definition uh, that explains it well is this. That it is a thing hostile to theocracy. And therefore, to be either destroyed, or in the case of certain objects, such as silver silver or gold, set apart for sacred use. So it's something that is hostile to the theocracy, and therefore must either be completely destroyed or set apart to be used for God's glory. This definition fits extremely well within the context of our text here. And in chapter 6, verse 17, Joshua told the people that the city and all that is in it is to be harem to the Lord. It's to be set apart. It's to be devoted to the Lord. He goes on to tell them not to take or covet the things from the city and that the things of silver, gold, bronze, and iron belong in the Lord's treasury. And in light of this, when we look at verse 1 of the chapter, we begin to understand that Achan, the way in which Achan actually disobeyed God. We begin to understand that Achan actually disobeyed by stealing that which God declared as hostile toward a theocracy. Hostile toward him and his kingdom, and therefore should have been set apart for sacred use. The NIV and the ESV use the term devoted things as a translation and seemingly portray this idea of things under the ban in a positive light. In the English language, however, I want you to understand that devoted is most commonly used in a positive manner. For example, if I say, I'm devoted to God, that means I'm set apart for God in a positive way. It's a good thing. Therefore, this translation doesn't really convey the full meaning, especially in light of the fact that the root word carries the idea of destroying or exterminating. So the King James Version version seemingly portrays the word only in a negative sense by using the term the accursed thing. I wouldn't say, I'm accursed to God, right? However, both the positive and the negative connotations are correct. See, the city of Jericho stood as a symbol of opposition to God, and therefore, everything in it was to be destroyed except the silver, the gold, and the bronze, which could be used to glorify God. The New Living Translation, I think, uses the term well by translating it dedicated things. And this clearly conveys the idea of giving everything up to God without using terms like sacrifice, which would further cloud the meaning. So hopefully that is clear as mud as we begin to look at what Achan did. We all know that Achan sinned, right? He disobeyed, and he took what he was specifically told not to. But it's important to look at the particular nature of his sin, to look at exactly what he did, not just that he disobeyed, but what he did. When one understands that Achan took something that was to be given to the Lord, it brings this passage in a whole new light. Bill Arnold sums it up well. He says this, The Hebrew word, kerem, plays an important role in understanding these battles. The spoil of war belonged to the Lord, and he had the right to do with it as he pleased. 
Therefore, Joshua 7.1 should be translated as follows. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the dedicated thing. The dedicated thing. For Achan took from the dedicated thing. He took that which was dedicated, set apart for the Lord. And this translation helps us understand that Achan didn't, not only, he not only disobeyed God, but he actually stole from that which had been set apart for God. A modern day parallel might be to steal from the offering plate. What Achan did was that which was set apart for the Lord and for the Lord's use, Achan took that and stole that. He came up and he stole from the offering plate, if you will, while no one was looking. And I guess the question is this, you might ask, how does all of this apply to us? So the, I, I said I wasn't going to say this in my message, how does all of this, both individually and corporately, specifically apply to us at Harmony Bible Church? But you might ask that question, because you may say, I'm not stealing from the offering plate. I'm not taking from that which has been set apart for the Lord. Well, God commanded that everything in Jericho be dedicated to Him. The same is true of our lives as Christians in reality. In fact, Paul says in Romans 12:1, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. See, God expects everything in our lives to be dedicated to Him. And some of the things in our lives stand in opposition to our relationship with Him. Lying, Stealing, cheating, idolatry. And God says, destroy those things. Destroy those things. We dedicate them to Him by destroying them utterly. And some of the things in our lives can be used to honor and glorify Him. Sometimes they are things that we think are negative things when they're not. Maybe time, or money, or talents. Those are things that can all be used to glorify Him. Money being one that we sometimes think of as negative. When it's not at all negative, it can be used to honor and glorify Him. We can dedicate it to Him. So we dedicate them to God by not hoarding them, but instead using them for His kingdom. So since God has called us to dedicate everything to Him, the question we have to ask ourselves is, what are we holding back and why? Are we holding back our money? Are we holding back our talents? And what do we need to dedicate to God? Do we need to, de- to dedicate to God our time, our marriage, our friendships? Now as a side note, I just want to stress this point clearly. I'm not saying that you need to dedicate yourself more to the church. There's not much that gets under my skin more than you need to do more for the church. Hopefully you never hear me saying that. You need to do more. Why aren't you doing this and this and this for the church? If you ever hear me say, you know, we need to reach this community, and the reason that this church doesn't do X, Y, and Z, the reason that this community is not reached is because you don't, please, please tackle me or slap me or get me down off from this pulpit. I'm not saying that you need to do more for the church. Jesus Christ promised that He would build His church. And He's going to do that. And He's going to do that, by the way, with or without you or me. 
What I'm saying is that God wants to see you devote yourselves, not to the church, but He wants to see you devote yourself and everything you have to Him. And using your time, your talents, your money to serve the church, Harmony Bible Church, that is, if you're serving this church in particular, may be one of the ways in which you do that. But it's not the only way. It's not the only way. That instead, serving the church, loving the church, reaching the lost, participating in St. George Days, whatever those things are, those should all be things that overflow out of us because we are fully devoted and dedicated to the Lord. They're not a means through which we somehow become right with God. God is not impressed when we think we're going to build His kingdom. Instead, He wants us to claim the promise that He will build His kingdom. So I'll use time as an example. If we think about being dedicated to the Lord, if we as a church dedicated our time to God, I believe that it would transform our lives. I want to encourage you right now, and I want to encourage myself, by the way, because I'm guilty of this. I want to encourage you to stop trading your time for money. God's given us a great resource called time. And far too often, especially in our culture in America, we take this resource and we trade it for more money. Which, by the way, oftentimes we think we're going to use so that we can have more time. Which is ridiculous. We spend all of our healthy, young, vibrant years earning enough money so that when we're older, we can do very little. We waste all of our time trading it in for money. And I'm not saying we don't need money. I'm not saying we don't need jobs. Scripture's clear. If a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. We all have to work. But instead, I think sometimes we trade too much time for money. We're investing in the almighty dollar, if you will. And instead, what would happen? What would change if we started investing our time in studying Scripture? What if more of our time was spent, instead of going to work, more of our time was spent reading God's Word? What if more of our time was spent praying and developing a real prayer life? I remember reading about E.M. Bounds, who wrote many works on prayer. And E.M. Bounds used to get up and he would pray for four hours every morning. Four hours. Talk about a good investment for this time. What if more time was spent reaching the lost in our community around us? I'd encourage you to start investing your time in relationships with other believers, investing in your marriage, investing in your church family, investing in becoming a disciple maker. The point is invest in Christ's kingdom and not your own. And that's just one of the things that God has called us to dedicate to him, our time. See, Achan stole from that which had been set apart for God, and he buried it in his tent. He took that which was God's, and he buried it in his tent. And so the question is, what are you stealing from God and burying in your tent? What are you withholding from him so that you can invest in your own little kingdom? 
We all need to ask ourselves that question and really evaluate the way in which we live and say, if, if everything I have is from God, everything belongs to God, everything in my life is to be dedicated to Him, then how dare I steal it from Him and bury it under the floor in my tent? You see, we suffer great loss when we fail to devote ourselves fully to God. But I also want you to see this. I want you to see that others are affected as well. That when we do not use those things that God has given us, that God has called us to use to serve Him, when we, serve, we use them to serve ourselves, that others are affected as well. First of all, our, affections, our, our actions not only affect us, but they affect our families. This was certainly the case with Achan. Look at Joshua 7, 24-25. We see that Achan's actions affected his family. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. And they, were brought, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. You see, Achan's family seems to have, in some way, taken part in what he did. Now, we don't know how they were involved. Maybe they knew of his act, and they didn't say anything. Or maybe they helped hide the things that he, that he stole. Either way, we don't know exactly what their role was, but we know that they were taken outside of the camp, and they were stoned. Involved or not, his whole family suffered. Because our, our actions affect not only us, but they affect our families. And secondly, notice that not giving to God that which He has commanded us to dedicate to Him has a dramatic in, impact or a dramatic effect on those in leadership over us. So it's not only us, it's not only our families, but it's also those in leadership over us. Look at Joshua 7, 6-9. through Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, both he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off your name from the earth. And, and what will you do for your great name? After the Israelites were defeated at Ai, Joshua and all the elders, they cry out to God and they ask, why? Why is this happening? Joshua is distraught. And he questions the Lord. And he says, why did you bring us here to be slaughtered? Fortunately, in the next few verses, God brings Joshua back to his senses and back to his faith, and he reveals to him that the real problem is that there's sin in the camp and it must be dealt with. He says the real issue is that there's sin. He said, rise up. Why have you fallen on your face? This great thing has happened. There, is, there are things under the ban in your midst. And Joshua and the other leaders are now faced with having to deal with the problems that have resulted from Achan's actions. See, when we withhold from God, it is our leaders who pay part of the price. 
And lastly, not only is it us, not only is it our families, not only is it our leaders, but I want you to see that when we don't give to God that which He has called us to give to Him, our actions affect the entire community. Notice in verse 1 that Achan alone, that Achan acted alone. He disobeyed God's commands. And yet the verse says that the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully. 7-1, but the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan took some of the things under the ban. The sons of Israel acted unfaithfully. And the anger of the Lord burned against who? The sons of Israel. All of them. See, God viewed them as a community because they were a community. And much like the nation of Israel, God views us, His church, as community. He views us in community. And I believe that we miss some of the greatest promises in Scripture as Americans because we are so independent. We're so independent-minded. We don't think like a community. We think, I am my own person. And while there's some sense where that's, that's great and that's good and that's part of what makes America great is that we can be independent, that we have freedom of religion, freedom of speech, that we are not separate and apart from those around us. And God views His people again and again and again in community. I think one of the issues that sometimes compl- complicates this is that the pronoun for the, for the second person in English is the same whether it's singular or plural. Right? It's you. So, for example, many of you know Jeremiah 29.11, which says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity and to give you a future and a hope. And we claim that promise personally. We say, well, I was reading Scripture and God spoke to me and said, I have plans for you. And there is some element in which that is true. We have to remember, first of all, that he's speaking to specific people in a specific time, and that has application for us. But we also need to remember that the you there is plural, not singular. And we have no way of communicating this in English unless we were Southern and we use the term y'all, which, uh, frankly, I believe we should have a y'all version of the Bible. I think it would be very helpful. If every you we could understand, who is he talking to? Is he talking to me as an individual? Or is he talking to us as a body, as believers, or as a community? And that's what he says. He says, I have plans to prosper y'all. You see, we're a church body and our actions affect one another. And you can't say, the point of this is to say, you can't say, I'm going to continue in my sin because I'm not hurting anybody. Oh, the number of times I have heard that. I'm not hurting anybody. Oh, oh yes you are. Just as Achan's sin affected the entire community, my sin affects you. And your sin affects me. It does. We are one body. You see, when we don't honor God with all that we have, the consequence is the same as it was for Achan. It not only affects our walk with God, not only affects us personally, it affects our families, our leaders, our entire church, and even the world around us. Achan robbed the whole nation of the purity and holiness that it should have had before God. His sin had ramifications, negative ramifications, on all of the Israelites. And yet, 
in keeping with the two major themes of Joshua, as presented earlier, God was faithful in his covenant promises to the patriarchs while maintaining his righteousness and expected obedience. You see, only after sin was purged from the camp of the Israelites were they able to achieve victory over Ai. Once the sin was purged, they were able to achieve victory. And the same is true for us today. Only as we purge sin from our lives do we experience true victory. But I would do a major disservice if I left at that point, and said, amen, let's go home, and let's just never sin again, right? Because there's bad news. The, the message of this text is, only as we purge sin from our lives do we experience victory. And the bad news is, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that not one of us will ever completely purge sin from our lives. So we say, there's a price to pay. There's a price to pay for that. And praise God, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ today, praise God, I want you to hear what God did for us. That God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who died in our place. He took that punishment. But for most of us, we are followers of Jesus Christ. I believe that's why we're here today, because we're seeking to follow Jesus. So we need to remember that good news. We need to remember that victory is there for us. That ultimately, He cleanses the sin. He purges the sin from us. He makes us right with Him so that we can experience victory. And that victory, interestingly enough, is one that is given to us to continue to purge sin. That while He pays the, he pays the penalty, He pays the price that we should have paid, that He also allows us to battle sin. If you take from this message that you need to go here, from here and in your own strength sin no more, you've missed the point. The point is that God in His grace will enable you to battle sin if, if you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, you must battle sin. You must. Because your walk with God depends on it. Your family depends on it. Your community depends on it. Everyone around you, your leadership depends on it. Everyone around you depends on that. So Praise God for His grace in enabling us to do that. So we claim the promise, the, the promise that He will build us church, that He will carry us through to completion until the end, that it's not something we do in and of ourselves, but it's something that He will do in us and through us. So it's no small thing to say, leave here and sin no more. Because it's not something you're going to do in yourselves, but it's something that He will do in you. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for the Gospel. Thank You for the victory that we have in Christ. Thank You for an opportunity not only to be cleansed from the the ramifications of sin, not only cleansed from the punishment due because of sin, but also cleansed from the power of sin, to be freed from the power of sin. God, I pray that as we reflect on the Gospel and what You have done for us through Your Son, Jesus Christ, that each of us, each of us would leave here 
and sin no more, boldly remembering your promise that you will carry us through to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Polly, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and we invite you to connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. God bless you, and to God be the glory.